two more weeks and we'll be ready to start Luke 9 when Jimmy gets back. Well, let me ask you, which of the five senses, taste, smell, sight, touch here, is the most powerful? See, arguably, I would say touch because I'm a scientist at heart. I would give you some scientific research in at least seven areas to prove it. Developmentally, if you touch-deprived infants, it's been shown to lead to developmental delay. Those who are in the NICU, we were just talking about that, that get kangaroo care. They take the child, they take their clothes off other than the diaper, and one hour a day for two weeks they're held to the chest of someone. They have higher mental and motor scores at six months. Those children who are touched less have greater evidence of violence in their life later as adults. Financially, waitresses that lightly touch a customer on the hand or arm get bigger tips. People who are touched by a door greeter such as Walmart go in and then spend more money. Socially, stronger team dynamics. The more on-court touching in NBA, more early in the season, they were more successful at season end. Physically, touch leads to decreased heart rate, decreased blood pressure, increased immune system. I found this very interested in, in doctors who touched their patients. Their patients had increased survival rates. I use that to tell my student, this is why I always make a point to touch my patients. Romantically, 9 of 12 behaviors that increasingly intimate couples follow involve touch. I think that explains the paper rule. Better be a sheet of paper between you two on the couch. Increased reciprocal touch. In other words, the husband touches the wife, the wife then touches the husband, leads to longer, more satisfied unions. Noah, you might want to know this, that women that were lightly touched by a man were increased chance to agree with a request, such as give them your phone number. So if you want a phone number, lightly touch her. Educationally, teachers that touch students platonically, there was increased learning. They were more likely to speak out in class. There was a 1970s study. Librarians who touched the kids as they left the library were more likely to come back to the library. Emotionally, 2009 study, we can de decode eight emotions with 78% accuracy simply by touch. And decreased touch as a child leads to lifelong emotional disturbances. Touch is very, very powerful. As one poem said, a kiss may just be a kiss, a sigh may just be a sigh, but a touch can change your life. No more so is that true that a touch can change your life than the 8th chapter of Luke. Jesus heals a woman with an issue of blood simply through the power of touch. And do you know that we are a tech-saturated world, as someone has said, a touch-phobic society. And so I think we as Christians would do very well to get back in tune with the power of touch. <coughs> And so we're going to look at four aspects of this today. The throng, the torment, the touch, and the testimonies. So stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 8. 
I'm just going to read to 48. Luke 8, 40 to 48. Luke writes, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and fallen at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. The Word of God to the people of God, preaching the power of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. Father, we thank you for every sense that you have given us, that we can see and hear and taste. Father, we thank you for the amazing power of touch. We thank you for this story in which this woman had the faith and the courage to simply come up and touch Jesus' garment because she knew even if she were to do that, that Jesus could heal her of something that no one else have been able to do so. Help us, Father, to have ears to hear and to, Father, have hearts that would be mended to the truth of your word that we can take something from this message today, Father, that we can apply it to our lives. Help me to decrease and you to increase through me because your people need to hear from you today, not from me. It's in Jesus' wonderful and precious name we ask this. Amen. So we'll look first at the throng. That's verses 40 to 42. What we have here is a miracle within a miracle. It's the only place in the Gospels we find this. Intertwined miracles. The healing of the woman and the raising of Jairus' daughter. So having delivered the Gerasene demoniac last week and all the people the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to depart from them, Jesus obliged. We said Jesus doesn't stay where he ain't wanted. And so he got in the boat and he left. Mark tells us that Jesus crossed again in the boat to the other side. Look at verse 40. Luke tells us, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. This word in the Greek means to receive heartily, like a big welcome home party. They see Jesus' boat coming across the lake. Oh, here comes Jesus. The crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and everybody's there to welcome Jesus. Mark tells us that Jesus got off the boat, a great crowd gathered about him, and Luke continues, look at what he says in 41, 42, And there came a man named Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, and fallen at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And without hesitation, Jesus goes, for look at what we read next. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. That word pressed in the Greek literally means to choke. That's how thick the crowd was. And it's the tense that means and they choked him and they choked him and they choked him. They pressed on him so much. Mark 5.24, the word there is thronged. It means to press on all sides. To like squeeze. And so if you look at uh, verse 45, Luke mentions two other words there. One which means to hold prisoners in jail, to be locked in siege, and the other literally means to press grapes. 
So in summation, the crowd was crushing Jesus. That's how thick it was. You think about analogy today. Paparazzi. If Justin Timberlake were to come to Tipton County, which he sometimes does, and people were, the word were to get out, guess what would happen? People would throng him. They would crush him trying to get an autograph or picture or touch him. I also thought about this is probably what it was like uh, Neyland Stadium, third quarter of the South Carolina game. They were thronging out of there, squeezing each other to get out because they knew it was hopeless that they were going to lose. Folks were pushing and shoving. So the million dollar question though to me is this, why? Why is this crowd crushing Jesus? I think on the one hand, it's free entertainment. They ain't got TV. There's no reality shows. So WWJD, what would Jesus do next? I think maybe it was just popularity. Hey, let's go hang out with Jesus and see what He's going to do today because Joe and Sally and everybody else is going, so I'm going to go. And then I think some folks went because they said, well, what's in it for me? It's going to be free catfish Friday and Jesus is going to supply it. And so I want you to think of three things that this Thomas Kincaid painting worthy picture of Jesus being crushed by this crowd ought to remind us of. So turn to John chapter 6. First is it ought to remind us of just how fickle crowds are. So John chapter 6. Verse 1, starting there after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a what? Large crowd was following Him. Why? They saw the signs He was doing on the sick. And so Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then look at verse 15. He withdraws, perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by Himself. Then He issues the hard saying. As it's been said, whenever the crowds show up, Jesus breaks out the eat my flesh, drink my blood speech. You see, if the typical Easter service at a Baptist church had 5,000 people, Jesus wouldn't get up and say, man, we're so glad we got 5,000 folks. Let's everybody come back next week and have 7,000. He breaks out the hardest sermon possible. And so look at what he says in 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw there had been one, only one boat there and that Jesus did not enter the boat with the disciples but his disciples had gone away. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got in the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come from here? Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Because it was free catfish Friday. That's why you're here. And so then Jesus says to him, look at what he says in verse 35. I'm the bread of life. Look at what then the Jews say in verse 41. How can he say, I'm the bread that came down from heaven? Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? And then he goes on, verse 48, again, I'm the bread of life. Verse 51, I'm the living bread. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. But then look at what the, the Jews say. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so here it is. Truly, I truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And so flip to verse 60. And uh, it says, When many of his disciples heard this, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Mm -hmm. 
And look at 66. Here's the crutch. Or the crux. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see, we see the same thing in Luke. We're about to hit Luke 9, and that begins the discipleship section. And from there, 9 to 19, you know what's going to happen to the crowds? Whoosh, vanish. Dr. Bach says when Jesus gets serious about teaching his disciples how to live after his departure, references to crowds are lacking. Wiersbe says, Her, the woman with the issue of blood, witness was a rebuke to the multitude. You can be a part of the crowd and never get any blessing from being near Jesus. It's one thing to press Him and another thing to touch Him. It also reminds me of King Agrippa. Turn to Acts chapter 26. Remember Paul's brought before him? Look at 26, 24, and following. As he, Paul, was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you out of your mind. Paul says, I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking true and rational words. The king knows about these things, and to him I boldly speak, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to him, in a short time you would persuade me to be a Christian. Some translations say, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. As it's been said, one of the saddest words heard at the judgment will be the bitter cry of almost. To throng Jesus and almost be a Christian, you know what it is? It's to be a child of Satan. To throng Jesus and almost repent of your sins is to die in your sins. To throng Jesus and almost be saved is to be forever lost. To throng Jesus and almost go to heaven is to go to hell. A poem says, almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad, sad, that bitter well. Almost but lost. And so then the third reminds me of today. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years, brothers and sisters. Folks, still today, you almost convinced me to be a Christian. They throng Jesus. They have decades of contact just like we're going tonight to a reality check and that's the whole thing. Playing church. And they play church for years upon years upon years and their loss is last year's Easter eggs. And they still today will say, well what's in it for me to be on Team Jesus? What's in it to me to be a Christian? It's to have a certain status and to go to a certain church or to improve your business or maybe you do it because of prayer Peer pressure. Think of our country on 9-11. You couldn't swing a dead cat and not hit a hundred people in every church building. Today, now look. What have we done? Oh, we don't need you now, Jesus. We got it all figured out suddenly. The going gets tough and what happens? The fluff falls away. The crowds are gone. And so ask your average pastor and your average deacon in the average Baptist church today and they'll tell you the level, true level of commitment to Jesus Christ is in the basement. So we would do well to right out of the gate ask ourselves what is my motivation? What is Buffy Cook's motivation for following Jesus? And then grade yourself 1 to 10, A to F on how's my level of commitment? And I pray none of you are in here almost saved. Because if you're almost saved, you're eternally lost. 
Today's the day of salvation. Come and receive Him by faith. That's the throne. Let's look next at the torment. Verse 43. Y'all remember I said there's five facets from which Luke wrote. And this story here, he's writing as a physician. Week one, I said Luke was a doctor of souls. And here we have him doctoring to a woman and to one who is sick. A woman with flow of blood. We see this as Jesus is doing this. Luke is writing about this. And start to finish in a culture degraded and valued women, Luke is a book that highly honors women and puts extreme value upon them. You know why? Because Jesus did. But you know what the false assumption is? That if you're a Christian, you're misogynistic and you hate women. I found this in October 2014 Salon article and the title of it was 20 Disgustingly Misogynistic Quotes from Religious Leaders from St. Augustine to Pat Robertson Christian conservatives have a storied history of hating women. If they believe that, then you know what I would say? Have you not read? Because Jesus loved women. And Luke's gospel makes it apparent over and over and over. And Southern Baptists love women. Think about the Lottie, what are our two greatest offerings? Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong. And we just had in this church Monday night, Jeff Epps get up and say, you know how the boys' ranch started? When a woman went to her deacon. And the deacon then went to the pastor, and so now we have Tennessee Baptist Children Home. If you take women out of the church, it ain't half of the stuff don't get done. Probably 90% of it. You see, what Jesus, all He cares about is your need. And this woman, I'm going to give you some ways maybe you don't even think of as you read this, how great of a need she was in. First, physically, look at what it says. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. This is uterine hemorrhage, a.k.a. dysfunctional uterine bleeding. Lead it to doctors to then take and put a $25 word on a $5 condition. Amen? And so, ladies, I don't know about y'all, but can you imagine this? Twelve solid years. And so I don't want to get crazy on this, but think about it. The constant mess. There's no feminine hygiene products. You know when we go to Africa that girls there have to stop going to school at twelve because there are no feminine hygiene products. Girls, y'all ought to be thankful for that that you live in a country where they're readily available. Think about the chronic pain she probably had from this. There's no birth control pills. There's no hormone pills. There's no ibuprofen, no heating pads. There's no Lortab, Percocets, none of that stuff. She's got to be chronically anemic. There's no way you believe for 12 years not be chronically anemic. Any of you ever been chronically anemic? You can't even put one foot in front of the other. You're so tired. You feel short of breath. You're weak. Your head throbs and pounds. Your heart races. There's no iron pills. There's no transfusions. And not only that, Mark tells us in Mark 5, 25-26, she suffered much under many physicians. She wasn't getting better under their care. She was actually getting worse. The Talmud gives some of uh, no less than 11 cures for this. And listen to some of these. Carry the barley corn from the dung of a white female donkey. Drink wine mixed with onions. 
Well, the onions might not fix it, or maybe the wine did. Wine mixed with rubber alum and garden crocuses. Who wants to sign up for that one? Even today, with all of our medical skill, what is the only thing that helps the vast majority of women? Hysterectomy. This wasn't available, and so she just got worse. Alright, so go on and turn to Mark chapter 5. So that's physically. And now I want you to think about emotionally what this woman's life must have been like. Mark 5, 26. It says she suffered much under many physicians. That word there means to feel heavy emotion. Have any of you ever been sick 24-7, 365? Yeah. You ever had pain 24-7, 365? Because I have. You know what starts to happen? You start to feel depressed. And you start to feel hopeless. And if it goes on long enough, some people start to get suicidal. Think about in this day, there would have been tremendous guilt. Because what was it that the, the uh, Pharisees came and asked, Jesus, or, or the disciples asked Jesus in John 9 about the man they saw that was born blind? Who sinned? Him or his parents? And so to be sick then, to be diseased was it was your fault it was your own sin. It was God's judgment. So imagine the tremendous emotional burden this woman toted around. Alright, financially. It says she spent all her living. Well, she couldn't work for 12 years because she was ceremonially unclean. Nobody's going to hire her. I guess she had to resort to begging because there's no food stamps. There's no disability. And she'd spent all her money on doctors. I mean, about like a doctor sucked the life out of a dead dog, Right? Maybe she's homeless. When's the last time she bought a pair of shoes? Socially. Leviticus 15, 25-27 says she was ceremonially unclean. Anything she touched, anything she sat on would make it unclean. Nobody's inviting her to birthday parties. Nobody's inviting her for the girls' night out. She's getting no social invitations whatsoever. No social contact. Probably no friends. I mean, as a husband, with this being my BFF here, when she's gone a week, that's bad at my house. Not because i got to take care of kids, because I'm missing my BFF. But I can't imagine 12 years of that. Can you imagine no kiss, no hugs, no handshake? No one had touched her at all for 12 years. Alright, sexually, Leviticus 18.19 says she was forbidden to have sex. And maybe you're thinking, well, good. That's what I would like. Twelve years of that. Not good. Sexual health is very important to us. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift comes down from God the Father. Sex is a gift to us from God. Do you think that her husband stuck around when uh, he was stuck in a nice sexual relationship for twelve years? And you know what happened when your husband was gone? You had no protection of any sort financially or otherwise. And then spiritually, again, she's ceremonially unclean. She can't go to the synagogue. She can't go to the temple. Imagine that. If then you were not allowed to go to church, be involved in Christian fellowship, no Bible reading, no hymns for 12 years. I don't know about you, but that'd be enough right there to drive me crazy. I mean, between her and the demoniac that we looked at last week, I don't know which one's the worst lot in life. I mean, I thought of this and I thought this woman's life must have been like the most horrendous, twisted version of Groundhog Day ever. You wake up and you go, well, hopefully today is going to be the day that I'm healed. Nope. Wake up the next day. 
Hopefully today's going to be the day they don't heal. Nope. 4,300 days, 600 weeks, 144 months, 12 years, still nothing. And it made me think of the song, When Mercy Found Me. And in one moment, everything changed. Who I was got washed away when mercy found me. There shouldn't have been one amen. There should have been everybody in here amen. In one moment, everything changed when Jesus touched this old boy. And so look now at the touch. Look at verse 44. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Note first, Luke says she came up behind him. Why is that? Any of you ever been sick? Do you run around, if you've ever had physical or mental health issues, do you run around just blabbing that to everybody? Do you think people that are HIV positive, bipolar, have pancreatitis, they run around telling everybody what's wrong with them? Why don't we? Because of the stigma. And so when she's going to come face to face with Jesus, she's going to have to tell in front of the crowd and everybody what illness she's wanting cured of. Second is the crowd. When folks found out, they're not going to be too happy. You made us unclean by touching us. I mean, I see this in Africa all the time when we're in the clinic and we're handing out the numbers. You know what people will do before they get the numbers? They start pushing and shoving. And if they think that they ought to be given a number and you shouldn't, they'll whack you in the head. You know how they treat people with HIV? Excommunicate them. They think that it can be transmitted by just touching someone. And so I can imagine how they would have treated her if they'd known she was approaching Jesus. And then Jairus, think he was in a hurry? We're going to look at that next week. It says in Mark 5.23, he implored Jesus earnestly. You know why? It's a life and death situation and the clock is ticking and his daughter is literally dying. Now I know how I act in traffic. I can only imagine how y'all do when I don't actually have to be somewhere in a hurry and somebody pulls out in front of me and then immediately what happens? You jump into the flesh and the old man is suddenly resurrected and you're ready to go postal on somebody, right? Now imagine your daughter is dying and you've got your flashers on and no one will get out of the way. So now this woman comes up to stall things. You think Jairus is going to be too happy about it? And then what about Jesus? What if he refused to touch her and heal her? There's no guarantee. I mean, legally she had zero right to come and approach Jesus. What if not only he refused her, but rebuked her? No wonder she came up from behind him, right? But think about this. Her blood counts zip. She's been sick for 12 years. It's a crowd that's crushing Jesus and she's having to push her way through it. You know what faith does? It says, I don't care. It says, I'm going to get there. I don't care what Satan throws at me. I don't care what gets thrown in my way. I'm going to make it to Jesus. And so she made it and she touched the fringe of his garment. That's actually the talif, the prayer shawl that hung over their shoulders. It probably wasn't actually down on the ground, although it could have been. But rabbinical teachers wore this in fulfillment of Numbers 15, 38-40, if you want to read that. But it reminded the wearer he was a man of God. Committed to keeping God's laws every time he dressed. 
there's a bunch of us that would do well to have a talith. To remind us every day we walk out the door that we are to be men and women of God. The Pharisees took this to the extreme. You know what they did? They made theirs all nice and super long. See, there's a difference between being pious and being pompous. And so take note of two things. Mark 5, 27. Let me read that real quick. It says there, She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind Him in the crowd and touched His garment. She could have used any kind of number of excuses to stay at home, couldn't she? Well, the crowd's going to be too big. Nothing else has worked for 12 years. I've only gotten worse. I really don't have a right to come to Jesus. I mean, as a means of last resort. I'm not important enough. I mean, Jesus has got bigger fish to fry. I mean, look, this uh, daughter is about to die. Do these things sound familiar? You know why? Because people float the same excuses today. They'll let anything come in the way between them and Jesus and their faith in Him. But what do we let stand in our way between that? When mercy found me, my Savior's arms were opened wide and I felt love for the very first time when mercy found me. My mind found peace. My soul found hope. My heart found a home. I think that's what many of us as Christians are missing when we don't take every hurt and every pain first and foremost to Jesus is peace and hope. Mark 5.28 it says that she reached out, she said, if I could just touch his garment, I would be made whole. Some people, some commentators I read said, well, this was kind of superstition or magic. Look at Acts 5. Because God honored even some crazier things than this. Acts 5, 15. So that they, this is when um, the apostles were gathered together, it says, so they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Acts 19. 11 to 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So God honored even stranger things. It's not magic, it's just elementary childlike faith. As one person said, even though her knowledge was imperfect, she believed that Jesus could heal her, and Jesus honored that faith. As Dr. Hughes said, her faith was uninformed, superstitious, presumptuous, and perfect, but it was real. Christ honored her fledgling faith. Think about when you were first a Christian. Did you have it all figured out? Did you have every Bible doctrine 100%? No. You just reached out in faith. And so note at last the result of when she reached out in faith and touched Jesus. What happened? It says, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. You know how that happens? Only God. That's how it happens. That teaches you there and if nothing else that Jesus is God. Finally look at the testimony. These last four verses like a tennis match. Jesus, Peter, Jesus, woman, Jesus. Look at Jesus in verse 45. And Jesus said, who is it that touched me? Does that seem odd to you? A curious question. Don't you think Jesus knew who touched her? Why did he then say that? Because he has ulterior motives, which we're going to get to in a second. And so now look, all denied it. When all denied it, Peter said, I mean, this is almost comical. Can you imagine this? All right, all right. 
Who touched Jesus? Who touched Him? We're going to wait. One me. One me. I didn't touch Him. And then look at old Peter. Old Peter. Old rash mouth. Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounding you are pressing in on you. One person said, Peter spoke up because undoubtedly he was opening his mouth to change feet. <laughs> Jesus, you, you okay, buddy? I mean, it, it's been a long night. You've been heal, you know, healing uh, demons and calming storms. and uh, You don't look so good. You know, Maybe you need some fresh air. You know, this crowd squeezing in on you. I mean, maybe it's just like a gust of wind. I mean, the question was pointless to him, but it wasn't pointless to Jesus, and it wasn't pointless to the woman. Look at what Jesus said. He said, someone touch me. He said, I ain't losing it. Look at what he says in, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Morris says there's mystery here. What does that even mean? I don't know. And what have I said? If Scripture's silent, then we're to be what? Silent. All we know is that it says power went out, power went out. Amen? So why was he so adamant on bringing this woman forward? First, it was necessary for her. The cure needed to be widely known. She didn't need to just come up and touch Jesus and then go back to her home and be healed and not everybody know about it because she needed to return to life and be able to go back to the synagogue and go to the temple and be invited to social events and things like that. And then it was good for her. It strengthened her faith. And it was good for the disciples. They needed to know that whenever we are involved with service to God, it requires something of us. Some power went out from Him. And today, when we serve God, it's going to require some stuff of us. It's going to cost us. And fourth, it was good for Jairus. Because you know what's going to happen? Soon somebody's going to come up and say, Hey, your daughter's dead. Quit bothering Jesus. And you know what a tendency would be potentially for him? To blame this woman for the delay. But he needed to know that Jesus was able. And so now look at the woman. It says, And when the woman saw she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him, declaring the presence of all the people, why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. It says she was not hidden. She knew Jesus knew. And she came. She had already tried to probably slide out unnoticed. And so then she came trembling. Why do you think she came trembling? Scared. What's Jesus going to say? What's Jesus going to do? Maybe he'd take her cure away. What would the people say? What would the people do? They'd try and stone her once they found out they made all of them unclean. So she was going to have to speak. She was going to have to tell what happened. Would Jesus be angry? And so then she declared exactly what happened, how she had been immediately healed. And look at what Jesus says. Verse 48, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. First daughter. Jesus is probably younger than this woman, so why did he call her daughter? Because it shows she is now in the family of God. She has a new relationship. And you know what? It's one thing to be physically healed, but you know what was going to happen? She's going to die eventually. Hallelujah, somebody. She's going to get sick again. And it ain't going to matter a hill of beans that she was healed of this issue of 12 years of blood whenever she dies again. But look at John 11. What did Jesus say to another woman? Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? So she was spiritually healed. He says, your faith has made you well. It's not that you have faith perfectly figured out. It's who you got your faith in. What have we said before? You know, we always teach people, don't have all your eggs in one basket. When it comes to your salvation, you better have all your eggs in one basket. And that's Jesus Christ because no other basket works. And then third, go in peace. Well, that's weird. Why did he say that? She needs some kumbaya, let's all grab a hand kind of peace. No, because you know what the sinner is? The Bible makes it perfectly clear that the sinner is at war with God. We ain't just lost, brothers and sisters. We are at war, at enmity with God. And you know what the Bible says about the person that is saved? That they are at peace with God. You know, immediately when I was saved, one of the verses that spoke to me the most was John 16.33. As it's been said before in the bumper sticker shows, no Jesus, N-O, no N-O peace. But you K-N-O-W Jesus, you K-N-O-W peace. True peace came into my life. I was no longer at war with God when Jesus came and rescued me. Two last points I want to make about this is this, which goes to what David talked about, the violin in the master's hand. Mud verse masterpiece. You know what we do? We put labels on people. And we decide how much value they're worth. You know what Jesus does? He just says they're all infinitely valuable. Listen to this. This traveler who went to the southern Russia state of Georgia before World War II was taken to see the humble a humble old woman in her, her cottage and she asked that traveler to then deliver to Moscow some homemade toffee to her son. Said he can't get anything like it in Moscow. You know who her son was? Joseph Stalin. Labels didn't matter to that woman. She loved him. Even though he was a ruthless person and a murderer. But you know, what do you think people thought of this woman? How many labels do you think they had attached to her? Don't you think that if Joseph Stalin, and I pray he did, if he would have turned to Christ in faith and repented of his sins, that God would have forgiven him of everything he did? Because his soul was just as important as mine and it's of an infinite worth. I don't care. We need to stop putting labels on people and we need to see every person as needing Jesus Christ. We've said it before. You're either lost and you need saved or you're saved and you need disciple. That's it. Stop looking at people otherwise. I said it this morning in Sunday school. Y'all remember I told the story about the black pastor who went to a church and he pre or a church invited him down. said, come preach at our church. And he preaches just knock your socks off sermon. They said it was fantastic. Come back next week. He preached the same sermon. They said, well, that was pretty good. Why don't you come back one more time and preach again for us? We came back and he preached the third Sunday and he preached the same sermon he had. He's now preached it three times in a row and now they're offended and they said, Pastor, we want to hear another sermon. He said, you start obeying the first one, I'll give you the second one. Brothers and sisters, here's what we need to put. Y'all ever have a, a, a stare, you know, the a record player and it gets on there and it's like, 
repeat, repeat. We need to do this. Put on, repeat this. Love God, love people, repeat. Love God, love people, repeat. Love God, love people, make disciples and keep repeating that and quit worrying about the rest of it. And then finally, remember what we've said before? How many Gospels are there? Five. But actually, you know, we could say there's seven. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. This woman is such a testimony. Uh, the Eusebius, the great church historian in 300 AD, he said that this woman had at her own cost erected a statue in her native city commemorating her cure from Christ. And the statue was there until Julian, a Roman emperor, tried to bring paganism back, destroyed her statue and erected his own in place of it, only to see his statue blasted to smithereens by a thunderbolt from God. But you know what still stands 2,000 years later? This woman's testimony. This woman's testimony that tells us still today, through faith, Jesus can. And through faith, you need to have a take no for an answer kind of faith. Not. What did the woman do in Luke 18? She annoyed the judge so much, he finally said, get out of here, I'm going to answer your request for nothing else other than you'll stop knocking. We need to have that kind of pushy faith that believes that Jesus can do anything. And so as we close this message, and David's going to come up, we're going to do this a little different. Closing in the invitation a little different this morning. Difference good. Amen? Dr. Tozer has a book, Rut, Rot, or Revival. And you're one of those three. You're either stuck in a rut, or you're rotten, or you're in revival. And so sometimes we need to do a little different. This desperate woman here is all of us. Because we're all sick and ill. Helpless and hopeless. We spend our money on stuff that don't work. When Christ comes, what do we need to do? Reach out and touch Him by faith. We don't need to fear He's not going to answer. We don't need to fear we're too stupid and we don't have it quite figured out enough. We don't need to fear that our faith isn't strong enough or big enough. We don't need to fear the crowd around us or we're not important enough. Jesus has got bigger fish to fry and so let Him worry about somebody else and answer that prayer because mine doesn't really matter. What we only need to fear is that we will let Jesus pass by without reaching out and touching Him by faith. And this is what we're going to do. Who in here this morning can shout, He touched me and made me whole? Nobody? I'm the only one. I'm the only one standing and the only one got my hand up. I'm going to give you a second chance. I know maybe you're a little sleepy from the sermon, but I'm going to give you a second chance. Y'all ought to be back to Pentecostal because if you can't jump up and down and sing and shout that Jesus Christ touched you and made you whole, you need to come actually get saved. Because I'm worried about you. So who in here can sing and shout, come on, be, I know this is weird, Baptist, look, do, uh, do like Tim Hawkins says, do the window washer. You can do the window washer. Jesus touched me and made me whole. Yes, hallelujah. If I can get up here as your pastor and, and then the spirit act crazy and y'all go say, man, you want to see what Dr. Cook did this week and tell the whole county? Then you can do it too. And we're going to stand up and we're going to sing that song. And like David has said before, we're going to sing it like you mean it. We're going to sing, He touched me, and you're going to sing it like you mean it. And then, let me ask you, who in here says, Brother, there's something going on in my life. My heart is burdened. My mind is burdened. 
there's some situation either in my life or somebody else's life, only Jesus. Only God. Only God can fix this. Only Jesus can touch this. And I need to reach out in faith. I may have said that I have, but I haven't really asked Jesus to really just touch this situation and do what Jesus can do. And me step back, as Coach says, and get out of the way. And let's quit trying to fix it and let Jesus do Jesus and let Jesus be Jesus. So after we sing the song, then what we're going to do, we're going to um, pause for a minute and I want people to come down to the altar. I pray it's full. Because what I want us to do in that time, I want us to come down here and reach out to Jesus by faith this morning. I want us to lay whatever it is that you just said, I need Jesus to do what Jesus can only do. And Him be Jesus to lay it on this altar and say, Jesus, you need to touch this situation. And then we're going to go back to our seats. And we're going to sing the chorus one more time. We're going to be dismissed. Is it clear as mud? We're going to stand up. We're going to sing it all the way through with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what you're told to love God as. And then we're going to come to the altar. And then we're going to sing the chorus one more time. And then we're going to pray and be dismissed. Got it? Alright, so stand with me. Shackled by heavy
touch me oh he touched me and all oh, the joy that floods my soul something happened and now 